What's up, everyone? This is episode number 40 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. It's where I try to answer questions like, was Panini's Dutch auction a smashing success? Was it a big stinker? Did collectors get the Dutch oven treatment instead? You know, the important stuff in life. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on my social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Uh, if you're sick of hearing about Prism already, look, I get it. You know, it's where a lot of card-related content is focused right now. You go on Blowout, that's all people are talking about. You go on Facebook, that's all people are talking about. It's all over Instagram as well. I get it. Um, you know, I've talked about growing tired of some of the shiny stuff at certain points in the collecting season, but I do think the initial rush of Prism content in the Prism retail hunt is pretty fun. I think it's been a, a pretty enjoyable couple of weeks in the hobby. It's a pretty big story right now. So if that's not your thing, that's completely cool, but let people enjoy it. Um, and as far as this episode goes, so yes, there will be some Prism content. Uh, at the start here, but there will also be plenty of non-PRISM content a little bit later on. I've got a conversation that I recorded with Jake Roy from 90s B-Ball Cards YouTube channel that I'm pretty excited about, uh, but before I get there, I want to talk real quick about finally finding PRISM and then also the first off-the-line release that's been making hobby headlines quite a bit as well. Okay, so first things first, uh, last week I talked about the um, Oregon Trail-like journey that I made from Walmart to Walmart in an attempt to acquire some prism of my own. I'm proud to announce that while it was exhausting, there were no snake bites, there was no typhoid fever, well, on my part at least, I don't know what happened to the dude in the bathroom, but um, come the day before Thanksgiving, I still hadn't found prism, I was tuckered out. I decided that I didn't want to fight the crowds anymore. Um, my wife, on the other hand, I, I think she thrives off of that. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's just she has incredible patience with people. She needed to go get some things for Thanksgiving, so she went out. Anyway, she went on her way. I was at the house. I get a call from her, and she can hardly speak. And it said the first words were, There's so much prism. What do I do? And I've mentioned before that Mrs. Wax Museum really likes opening Prism. She said they had three whole full trays. Well, you know, there was no way that we needed to grab that much. So I tried to calculate the cost in my head as best as I could. She said there were no mega boxes, just blasters, hangers, and fat packs. So I think my original instructions were something like, all right, let's grab 10 hangers and 15 fat packs. And her response was, yeah, well, what about the blasters? Well, I've never been a big fan of those, but we ended up throwing two of those in as well. So needless to say, it was a little more than I intended to break. Uh, a couple days later, we ended up with another small batch too. Um, like I said, definitely more than I wanted to break, but it was a lot of fun. Um, she pulled two Zion base. I pulled zero. So it's kind of like our Luca experience last year where she got all the Lucas. Our best silver was um, a Hachimura silver, even though it has a couple silver um, or a couple small circles on the surface. Uh, we also got some of the photo variation rookies from the hanger packs. I don't know what kind of value they'll hold in the long term, but I really, either way, I like the idea of these. I, I think it's another little chase. 
Um, it, you know, it gives an incentive to grab the hangers in addition to the orange ice. So I personally, I like the hangers the most. We didn't get the coveted Zion Silver. Um, we definitely didn't break even in terms of monetary value, but it was a fun little chase. And there's definitely an experience cost attached to that. For those of you that are first-time prison breakers, uh, maybe you collect other sports and you wanted to jump in on the hype. Uh, maybe you're listening for the first time because you want to learn about basketball cards. You know, welcome. Um, I just want to let you know in, in terms of prism, the experience value and the monetary value, a lot of times of these cards can and likely will increase in the years that follow as some of the forgotten rookies or the late bloomers start to make their mark, or even as a guy has, you know, one or two really solid games, it, it can really up the price of some of this stuff. So uh, may, some of you baseball people might be familiar with that. Um, I feel like we've seen that in a number of the update sets. So anyway, that was my hunt and that was my experience with Prism so far. Some people chose to hunt in other ways, which segues to the next Prism topic that I want to cover really quick. I've referred to it already. I previewed it last week. It's Panini, um, their Prism first off the line Dutch auction style release from earlier this week. And the way it was marketed was a little confusing because some people were under the impression that it would be run like a, a, duck, a Dutch auction where everyone gets the product at the lowest buy-in. That was not the case. And in fact, I wonder if some people didn't get stuck with $1,000 boxes because of this. But um, it doesn't look like too many people bought in at that price point. Um, but rather, the, the way it actually worked, whatever price you locked in at is the price you ended up paying. And this should have been called a reverse auction from the start. But anyway, the whole thing, it was a little comical from the start. People were, for lack of a better term, uh, just kind of tuning in just from an entertainment perspective to see how this thing would play out. Well, Panini decided that the price would drop a whole $5.03 every two minutes. So this thing dragged on for quite a while. I will say... I'm proud of the basketball market for actually waiting this thing out. Panini finally sold out of these things, but um, not until the buy-in had dropped to $290, which was way lower than I expected. Um, I still don't think it's a great deal at that price, but I will say it's a lot lower than I expected. Now, I know a lot of people out there like the format, um, but the product itself wasn't that desirable when you look at the, you know, the the perks of it you don't get any base cards um, you don't get some of the gold exclusives from hobby from what I understand um, so the product itself wasn't that desirable that sounds like something we've seen recently in the card world but um, I think Panini left a lot of money on the table by dropping the price in such small increments it's almost as if people had enough time to sit there and really weigh their decision whereas if Panini had dropped the price $100 or even $150 at a time, I think you get a lot more people that would have caved around the $700 or the $550 mark. There would have been a definite fear that they were going to miss out. Anyway, it was interesting to watch the whole thing play out, and I'm curious to see if that's what first off the line will look like in the future or if Panini's going to continue to change things up over time. You know, we won't know until the next release or until it happens. Um, all right, well, enough of that. Um, it's time to move on to the main feature today, which is a conversation I had about a week ago with a friend of the show named Jake Roy. And in this conversation, we talk about rookie card production numbers over the years. 
some of the production spikes were predictable and some not so much. And Jake really brings a lot of information to the table about times that I, I lived through and collected through, but maybe didn't think about from a broader perspective. Um, Jake is a valuable asset to the hobby. I was lucky to have him on. I want to preface this real quick by saying that we recorded everything, like I said, it was about a week ago. It was before either one of us found Prism, but that doesn't really affect any of the actual data that we discussed. So here it is. I hope you enjoy. All right, so joining me today is friend and fellow content creator Jake Roy. Some of you might remember him from my first listener forum, uh, or you might know him better from his YouTube channel, 90s B-Ball Cards, which um, we definitely will talk some more about later. Uh, Jake, I guess uh, I should say welcome back to the show since you were a part of that forum. I saw your Instagram video a couple days ago. You were sick last week. You sounded awful, but you're sounding much better now. How's it going? Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me. And yes, I am doing much better. Thank you. Uh, that was a rough week. You know, I felt fine, but I definitely didn't sound good enough to record anything. So glad to be on the show today. Um, so last week, you sent me some info um, that you had compiled about rookie cards in general over the last few decades. And um, it was some really good stuff. You also posted these on your social media accounts. Um, you know, him and uh, for those of you, you that are listening, Jake and I, we chat on a regular basis. And I've wanted to have him on here for a while now, not just as part of that forum, but an actual episode. We've been throwing some ideas around. Um, and we were talking about this information that he sent me, and he said that it fits my channel better because it hits on some of the more modern stuff. However, I do want to say before we start, Jake, I think you're the perfect guy to frame that information for us. Because it's talking about rookies from the 90s to today, and, and you've opened so much 90s stuff, and you've been opening this stuff since the 90s. Um, so can you kind of just real quick, I, I know you've gone into detail on your channel about your collecting history and your box breaking history, but can you just give us a real quick summary of that history? Sure. Uh, you know, so I really started my foray into basketball cards was really in 1995. And like you said, I, I do talk about it on my channel a little bit. Uh, you know, so there was a store that opened up that would give us a free pack of NBA hoops whenever we went there. And uh, I went there every single day <laughs> that <laughs> summer. Uh, so I started with NBA hoops, uh, and I still love that product. And then the the love affair just kind of grew from there. I, you know, picked my favorite players and stuff like that through the years. So, you know, um, my dad obviously saw that my brothers and I were really into cards, so he would take it upon himself to go and get us boxes for Christmas, birthdays, you know, really any excuse. I think he had fun with it, too. So, uh, you know, we opened tons of stuff, you know, 97, 98 Flair Showcase, which is, you know, it was worth a lot less than, than it is now. Right. Uh, you know, 96 Finest was another one, but we also did a lot of, uh, you know, 96 Collector's Choice that I loved. Um you know, he he loved the holographic set from 99-2000, and really 99-2000 has a lot of products that I remember fondly, uh, you know, getting a box of MVP and busting that right. up with my brother. The rookie um, class was you know, stacked. It was at the time. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess we should so say in, in history, yes. Yeah, I was a huge Lamar Odom fan, huge Baron Davis fan. I really thought Lamar Odom should have been the number one pick to the Bulls, and I thought they made a big mistake with Elton Brand, and in hindsight, it's kind of a wash. Right. So. Um, yeah, and then, you know, the other thing that he also loved to do is um, something that I haven't gotten back into, but buying kind of small collections on eBay, and then we'd literally sit around together during Christmas 
and uh, go through all these cards. And I don't even remember how my brothers and I fought for them, but we figure out a way. <laughs> we divvy them all up. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And it really got us to know some kind of oddball products. Uh, so that was also a lot of fun because there was a lot of oddball products in the 90s um, opposed to today. So that's kind of a, a really snippet of, of my collecting history in the 90s. And then, you know, going into college and high school, I kind of slowed down a little bit, but I would definitely run to, you know, local Walmart or whatever, grab a blaster here and there. Um, oh, 304, I was a little skeptical on the LeBron years, unfortunately, but uh, I did pick up some of the finest and the tops and the MVPs and, and you know, stuff I could find at, at the local retail stores. All right, and then that brings us to the more current stuff. Um, were you still around when Panini jumped back in or kind of what, what was your history there? Yeah, you know, I was kind of still in the same, same boat at that point. I was, I knew about Panini getting into it and I was a little bit jaded, you know, cause I had so many right. memories with upper deck and tops and I loved Fleer products. So I was, I wasn't so fond of going out and getting packs and boxes and such, but I, you know, deep down, I still wanted to open stuff. So, you know, during the summer vacations and stuff, I'd usually run to a Walmart or a Target and get something to open. And, you know, I didn't really have any idea what the products were. I would just grab, you know, something that looked interesting. And, you know, sometimes it was a prestige set that didn't look so great. And other times it was a studio set that I really loved. So, um, you know, but my my knowledge of those products is much lower. It was really just was available at, at retail stores at that point. Right. Um, you mentioned something in there and, and this really isn't where we're going today, but I want to talk about it real quick. Buying a collection, um, or buying mm -hmm. lots. That's like one of the greatest ways to learn about cards. Um, especially, you know, yeah. it'll help you fill in the gaps on some of the years you missed because it forces you to go. And, you know, there's almost this fear, especially if you're looking to flip or, you know, whatever you're looking to do, there's this fear, like, you know, I need to figure out what this is or I'm going to end up giving away something valuable. Um, and that's kind of how I've learned about inserts from products that I was priced out of at one point or, you know, mm -hmm. stuff that I never opened. So I think you brought up a pretty good point there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those, those Sears, <laughs> those Sears hoops packs or, or products with the yellow borders were, uh, a mystery to us when we first had <laughs> them, but we did, we learned about them. Right. So. Uh, I'm also obligated here because I think my listener base expects me to tell you that hoops sucks. Um, <laughs> uh, so let me clarify something here because I've been, I feel like ever since I made that statement, I've been clarifying for weeks, for <laughs> multiple weeks now. Um, I like hoops. I like opening hoops. I've opened hoops my you know whole collecting life. Hoops at the current price point sucks. Um, and I would almost argue that hoops at last year's price point, which was half, sucks a little bit as well. Um, but you it know, is a fun rip. I do like to get a blaster every now and then. Yeah, you know, I, I'm the same as you, in all honesty. I, I did get a blaster when it first came out this year to have a little bit of fun. Uh, but I also think you know, hoops in the 90s compared to now are two completely different beasts. Right. Um, not going to say any indictments on Panini for what they did, but it was just hoops, the base was always pretty low end but the inserts were what made it fun uh there were no parallels but you know getting uh a, a slam bams or a bams in 98 99 
that was a thrilling pull. <laughs> right. You got one. So those those rare, really cool looking. Or like the nine one one. Right. Wasn't that a hoops insert? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Nine one one. Those redemptions I love. Uh, the build your own cards. You know, they had a lot of really cool things in hoops. I think it was kind of a uh, experimental product for the Fleer and Skybox company. All right. So anyway, I I got us off there, but I do need to clarify for all the hoops lovers out there. Um, I don't hate you. Okay. Um, all right. So anyway, let's jump right into the the graphs that you shared this week. I'll do my yep. best I can to describe them, but um, if people want to see them, they can find them on your Instagram, which is nineties underscore b ball underscore cards. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. And sure. and I'll link to that because I know typing stuff in after you've listened is a pain. Um, and if I need to, maybe I can repost these graphs on my account if for some reason Certainly. people can't find you. Um, but I will try and steer them to you. So what you've done is that you've created two graphs to analyze rookie card production. And your focus yep. is mainly on what you're calling unique rookie cards. Uh, right. That could mean a number of things. So let's go ahead and define mm-hmm. that first. What do you mean by unique rookie cards? Sure. So what I looked at is each individual card produced counting for one. So, and I'll give you an example because I think it's the best way for me to describe it. If I'm looking at, let's say, the LeBron James Topps Chrome rookies, I'm counting the base rookie as one, the refractor as a second one, the gold refractor as a third, the X-fractor as a fourth, and so on and so forth. So regardless of print run, each card counts as one to give you a true representation of how many unique looking cards are out there for each player. So that's how I, I defined unique cards. Okay. Even the one of ones count as one. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. So that, yeah, that's going to definitely create some interesting situations then as mm-hmm. our serial numbered stuff comes into play here. Yep. Um, so your your graphs um, start with 1990. Okay. Yep. And um, they show the, so the first one shows the average quantity of these unique cards produced in a given year of the number mm-hmm. one draft pick and the next two most popular rookies at that point in time. Um, right. And I as I think I alluded to this earlier, but that's why I appreciate having you on to talk about this, because we can look at the value of a guy like Steve Francis or Mike Bibby, um, mm-hmm. you know, but those values aren't really indicative of just how popular these guys were at the time. Right. Um, right. So your second graph then shows the quantity of unique cards of the most popular rookie in each year's draft class. So I'm interested right. to know a couple of things. Um, number one, where did you get your numbers for the number of cards produced? And then number mm-hmm. two, how did you go about determining the most popular players for each graph? Sure. So I got all this data from tradingcarddb.com, Trading Card Database is the, the long name. Uh, and you know, just kind of a quick plug, Trading Card Database is a great tool that I use a lot for a lot of research, even if I'm just trying to figure out what a product is or what a certain card is. So um, I grabbed that off there. There's a lot of information that they have. And one of the things is you can drill into a certain player and it'll give you the total count of cards and you can drill into a year. So it makes it really easy to get this data off of that site. Um, with that being the case, if there are any inaccuracies in the data on that site, that that's my source. So um, I I definitely am vulnerable if, if there are inaccuracies right. inaccuracies that people I, find. I don't think they're going to be glaring enough to really change the data, though. I, yeah, I think, right. yeah, I think in general the range is what we're looking for. Yep. 
Um, and then to the second point, so the way that I determine the most popular player, so obviously there's my memory, which in some cases is wrong. <laughs> uh, so what I did is I looked through the years and I took the number one pick, like we had said, and then I looked through really the, the most popular players that I remembered, even if they were outside of the lottery. And I also made sure all the lottery picks, top 10 guys, I looked through each one individually and just kind of noted down, okay, how many cards were printed of them in their rookie season. Um, and then I took whoever were the top two outside of the number one pick, uh, and those were the guys that were populating this data. Okay. Um, so let's talk through this thing then. Let's start with the 90s. Um, I'm going to um, avoid my temptation of just lumping all of the <laughs> 90s together. I don't do that sure. on purpose, but uh, I, I have done that from time to time. Um, so, you know, let's kind of, can you break down the nineties for us? What, what trends should we look at and, and how should we look at that whole, you know, decade? Sure. I think there's really two layers to the nineties. I kind of look at it as early nineties and late nineties. Um, you know, and I really kind of put the, the line in the sand at 1995. Okay. So, and the reason for that is there were a lot fewer products created at that point in time. There weren't really many, if any parallels in a lot of those products, uh, so you're really looking at base and a couple of inserts, um, now, I, especially for the rookies. Um, one real quick question. Do you think that um, having, oh, that, you know, that run in order of Shaq and then Penny and Weber and then Grant Hill and Jason Kidd being co-rookies of the year, do you think that kind of helped escalate things into that second tier that you talked about? I think it probably did. Uh, you know, Shaq was a huge, I mean, even back to Larry Johnson, those guys were huge players in college, uh, you know, really highly anticipated prospects. Uh, Weber was huge. Penny didn't really get huge until he was in the NBA. And, uh, you know, then, yeah, Jason Kidd, Grant Hill, I mean, even big dog Glenn Robinson was uh, right. a pretty big name coming into it. So I he's think a, those guys... He's a Purdue guy. I can't talk about him. <laughs> name that shall not be mentioned. Right. Um but yeah, and then in '95, you know, Jerry Stackhouse, he was being promoted as the next Jordan, uh, coming out of UNC and all that kind of stuff. So I think the excitement and probably what the card companies were seeing with the, um, the anticipation of those cards coming out of those players is what really escalated things as we got into 1996 with that great class and, and throughout the '90s. Yeah, and if you look at you know the the number of Jerry Stackhouse inserts or even sets that were, you know, featured him. Um, yeah. it, it's incredible, right? And if you're looking at this, you know, not, not not being there when it happened, it's like this doesn't make sense. Did he trick these manufacturers? Um, but no, he did not. He actually was a big deal at the time. Not to not yeah, to I'm... downplay his career though. He had a good career. He did. He did. He just wasn't he wasn't Jordan. No. You know. He wasn't. A lot of people have fallen short. Um, okay, yeah. so let's look at kind of look at your data here. I've got this chart in front of me. Um, we see for the most part a um, little climbs in the 90s. Uh, 95, mm -hmm. it dips a little bit, starts to go yep. up some. Um, 98, we have a dip, although I think there were probably some other factors in that, mm -hmm. right? Even though we had an amazing rookie class in 98. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, a lot of people forget uh, 98 is when we had the lockout. And, you know, really the half of the season was lost. It was only a 50-game season. Uh, that was the year that the Knicks and the Spurs were in the championship. And I think that's a huge factor. I mean, I was looking at some products just the other day, uh, Skybox Thunder and Fleer Tradition. Both of those packs in the boxes, when you look at them, they're labeled as Series 1. And as we know now, there was only one series. So there were obviously plans that a lot of these companies had to have multiple series, and the, the lockout just uh, messed up with stuff with that. So Yeah, it was – um, and then the Jordan retirement was a big deal yep. too. I mean, it's just – it was a down year for cards, um, although 10-year-old me was pumping all of my allowance into oh, tops. Wow. The Topps yes. base set, um, yes. which I actually I I found my East West refractor of David Robinson and Patrick Ooh, Ewing yeah. the other day, which I thought was really cool at the time because they actually, like you said, they met in the finals. Um, yep. The market never found that as cool as I did, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so so we saw yeah, that dip still. Like that. Um, yeah. What rookies were you chasing in '98? Where I'm assuming the the typical ones everyone was looking for. Yeah, I mean, Vince Carter, my brother is a UNC fan, so he was all over Vince Carter. So if if ever a Vince Carter touched either of our hands, he automatically was like, oh, I have to get that card. So I had to go a different route. And, uh, you know, some of the guys that I loved, and there were a lot of players I loved in that class, but Mike Bibby, I was really excited about. You know, he wore some pennies at Arizona, so that made me, you know, just <laughs> gravitate right towards him. Right. Uh, you know, I was not a big fan of Paul Pierce. Dirk Nowitzki is big now. Nobody cared about him back then. No. Um, Traded for Tractor you know, Trailer. Tractor Robert Tractor Trailer. Actually, <laughs> if we have time for a quick story. Um, I always had time my... for a Robert Trailer story. <laughs> so one of my friends grew up in the Dallas area, and uh, his family spent a ton of money sending him to all these basketball camps because that was his passion. So he went to a basketball camp with the Dallas Mavericks, and this was pretty early on in Mark Cuban's ownership. He wasn't the celebrity that he is now. Right. So he was at the camps and stuff. So my friend remembers sitting down. This is pretty soon after the 1998 draft class uh, was all picked. And he, he sat down next to Mark Cuban, and he was like, hey, I've got to ask you a question. You know, here's a you know probably a nine-year-old kid sitting down with Mark Cuban, <laughs> just, you know, let me pick your brain, buddy. And he was like, what are you guys doing drafting or trading this star and Robert Tractor Trailer for this this European clown, Dirk or whatever his name is? And, you know, his memory is Mark Cuban just smiled and he said, well, we, we think Dirk can be a really good player. Uh, we thought it made sense for our team in a lot of ways. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, we, we really believe in Dirk. Right. And, you know, now we know what the history now, is yeah. for those two players. Now, so. now he was right. Um which he, yep. Cuban kind of had a knack for that. That's kind of how he made his money with all the dot com stuff too. So, kudos to sure. to Cuban. But um, the European players were really weren't um, you know established in the NBA. I know there were some, but they, it wasn't like it is today. Um, so right. much so to wear another card from that class, uh, Peja. Um, mm-hmm. He didn't. That was his rookie card. But um, if I remember correctly, he didn't play that year. Is that right? So that was his first year that he was eligible to play. Um, he was actually drafted in 96, Okay, uh, which is an interesting thing about him. But they didn't create his rookie cards because he didn't come over. So that was um, – I can't remember exactly how much he played, but I think it was kind of abbreviated. 
uh, for him. And, and that was an interesting thing, too, with the European players where, you know, you would be drafting them years before they were actually eligible to play in the NBA because they had contracts over there. And a lot of times, these guys would go in the second round and they would never come over. These, put, these teams would, you know, just kind of lose out on that pick. So, you know, drafting one of those guys was pretty risky at that time. Right. Okay, so then um, I could talk about these years forever, so I'll try and move things along. Um, <laughs> then there was a spike in 1999. Obviously, that was um, because of Jeff Foster. Um, but there were... Clearly, <laughs> Clearly, <yes>. Jeff Foster <laughs> and Ron Artest carried that class. Yep, um, definitely. But you know, we, we did mention there, there were a lot of really big names. Uh, that was an exciting... Yep rookie class to me um did yep. did not stand the test of time but just a lot of really solid nba players not a lot of huge stars um so i i think you know we saw the the trend go back up probably more so because there wasn't a lockout but um having the those rookies probably didn't hurt is that your take on this yeah i mean steve francis was huge that year but there were a lot of other guys also um, yeah, I, I just, I remember it really, and it could have been some of my excitement, but there was just a lot of excitement around the NBA and, you know, could have been just like you were saying, coming out of the lockout. Uh, there were a lot of things going on and I think there's a lot of anticipation about, you know, who's going to be the next Jordan. So right. there were a lot of factors playing into excitement overall in the NBA at that time. Okay. So then we had, um, a little bit of a dip, right? From, we had, I call yep. them the dark years. Um, <laughs> I think that's from, fair. uh. Which from 2000 to 2001 to 2002, um, yeah. which by the way, you know, if, if you're wanting to like uh, rip a, a moderately priced Chrome box, uh, of course they've gone up some now, but as of a year or two ago, you could get 2000 tops Chrome for like, I don't know, 60, 70 bucks. Yep. Um, so that, you know, I, and I actually did, I busted one of those a couple years ago, got a, a Tim, a really rare Tim Duncan refractor. So that was kind of a cool experience, but, um, definitely I was not busting that for the rookies. It awful, right. awful, awful rookie class. Um, I don't even know. I don't even remember, you know, I know Kenyon Martin, it was in those years, like DeMar Johnson, like, um, yep. just awful. <laughs> Stromile Swift. Swift, our favorite Panini sticker autograph. <laughs> awful, awful, awful. He was awful then. He's awful now. Panini, stop yeah. it. Um, so anyway, not much to say about those years. Um, you know, there were some cool inserts. There, it doesn't mean that cards just sucked entirely in those years, but um, rookies drive the class, and the rookies sucked. So you know, what else and can you say? Another interesting. The other interesting thing with those years is that's when they really started ramping up memorabilia cards. Uh, you know, they were really exciting cards in the 90s, and they started making them, uh, you know, much easier to get. And I think I think it was 0203 that Topps came out with the Topps jersey collection where every card had a jersey piece. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, inevitably, if you want more memorabilia cards, you have to go outside of jerseys and... Uh, they didn't have the rookie photo shoots with people with, you know, 10 jerseys or whatever on. So getting rookie jersey cards was a lot harder um, to just put in the product. So right. I think that those were interesting years for That's sure. That's also when we had our, our first um, dedicated Logo Man set. It was 2002. Um, okay. And that was, yeah, that, that was, um, well, it was either Topps Stadium Club did an all-star set, which they're... There's only there's 15 cards. There's one made for each player. They didn't even stamp them one of ones though. 
which is oh, incredible. Really? <laughs> um, I have the Jermaine O'Neal from that set. I'll, I'll post it sometime. And then also Topps Jersey Edition had the one-of-one one logo men, which looks so um, bootleg that I get mm-hmm. I get messages every time I post them, people saying, hey, bro, <laughs> you know these are fake, right? I hate to tell you. <laughs> yeah, there were some. Now there were some faked copies out there, but um, mine are real. They just look really um, amateur. Okay, yeah, so not really yeah, good. not a great looking card. The the logo man like sticks completely off the card. Looks like it's it was glued on. So, but I love them. Right, they're they're my card. So all right, anyway, like what you love. Right, then we got to two thousand three. Huge spike. In the numbers, um, yes. you know, this one, it's not a guessing game here. So tell us a little bit about 2003. Yeah, so as you guys probably all remember, there's this guy who is a well-known prospect coming out of high school named LeBron James. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if people are familiar with him, but he was really popular. And uh, so, yeah, really, LeBron was the guy. Uh, and they also ramped up the number of sets that they created in those years. All the companies, Tops, Upper Deck, everybody was just, you know, it was really just cashing in on on that name. But the interesting thing with these data points is there were actually more Carmelo Anthony cards produced, and Carmelo Anthony was the number three pick. Um, but he was a really, really popular guy coming out of Syracuse, winning the national championship, all that kind of stuff. So you had the draft class was really driven by those two huge, huge monster prospects. And there were specific sets, I remember, Upper Deck did a rival set that was literally all LeBron and Mello. Right. And they had cards with both of them and cards with them individually. Uh, you know, they really hyped up that as a rivalry between those two players. Um, so that was, it was an incredible year um, for from a rookie class standpoint, for sure. I, I literally have that in my notes. It says, there are a lot of Carmelo jokes now. Talk about how Mello was a really big deal. So... So you hit it right yeah. on the head. Um, I, I, in another, I could tell stories all day, but another story I have is one of my friends brought me to a Celtics game when the, the Nuggets were playing because he was a Marcus Camby fan and Camby was on the Nuggets. I remember on a fast break, Carmelo got the ball. This is his rookie year in Boston, and he goes for a dunk, and he just did a regular dunk, you know, nothing special, and he got booed because people wanted to see a better <laughs> dunk from Carmelo. Right. Which is just like, and Boston didn't have a great team, so they weren't going for the Celtics at that time. Yeah, the the Carmelo in Denver was, you know, obviously he's way different than Portland Mellow. I'm not, I, that's not even a fair yes. comparison. But, I mean, even New York Mellow could just completely different players. Um, of course, the league evolved too over time, but you know, man, he was athletic. Like he, he was just a much, much different player then. But very excited, yeah. um, as you said, though, companies were just cranking out sets, and I don't blame them. It's the same thing we see with Panini now and Zion. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing there is that sets were created across the the full spectrum of value. So you had the right. low end sets, which is what I was uh, kind of privy to by you know not by choice it's just it, it was what it is um yep. tops rookie matrix tops bazooka okay mm-hmm. those were new sets so they're just making a bunch of new sets um upper deck rookie exclusives that was another oh, set yeah. um and even like those new you know one-off low-end sets like those lebron rookies are like 10 or 15 bucks a piece mm-hmm. uh well the bazooka yep. some of the bazooka stuff's higher but the rookie 
um, exclusive stuff is still like a $10 card. Uh, and then on the high-end side, obviously we got Exquisite, and I've talked about that before. Um, so just completely changed the game, completely changed, you know, let's let's ramp up production because now there was more of a demand. We hadn't seen that in a while. People were not, um, you know, rushing to card aisles to get DeMar Johnson, right? But now now we had that <laughs> demand. Sorry, DeMar, I'm really picking on you today. Um, not, not that he's listening, but now now we had that demand. Okay, so it, it was a really exciting year in the hobby, though. At some point, I just need to do a 2003 episode because it, there is so much to say about 2003, but um, I'll save that more for later. So 2003, we had a huge spike. Um, you know, it's hard to follow that up. So things dropped a little bit in 2004, um, mm-hmm. but we had good rookies in 2004. Um, we had yep. the, well, <laughs> at the time, I Relatively. should, yeah, yeah, I should say, <laughs> I'm, I'm, my mind, I'm moving my mind back to 2004 and trying not to let 2019 me step in. But um, <laughs> Dwight Howard was a really big deal. Yep. Um, I was an Okafor guy, which, you know, for many years you could say, I guessed wrong. Um, you know, now I was a big, I was a big fan of him too. I thought he was a great rim protector, but it's not too exciting for players. Yeah. I, I, it just didn't work. Um, so anyway, though, that, you know, that was a really big year and following up on 2003, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty fun year. Um, some of those sets from the previous year went away, but some stuff stuck. And um, you know, it, for me, it was a really exciting time in the hobby. Anyway, um, we had another dip in 2005, which you know is not um, is not proportional to the quality of rookies in my mind. I think that's fair. Yeah, there's a lot of hype around Andrew Bogut uh, coming into that class, right? But we ended up getting like, I mean, it was a pretty good class with Darren Williams and um, kind of those, mm-hmm. those guys. Uh, my guy Danny Granger. I um, mean, he wasn't a, a yeah, big name I then, Danny but um, Chris Paul. Chris Paul. Yeah, how could we forget Chris Paul? I think I've told my story <laughs> on here before of, of pulling the gold refractor, the Topps Chrome gold refractor, yeah, trading it for the Darren Williams superfractor auto because you know one of one is greater than out of right. 99 that's perfect logic right anyway um <laughs> at the time it probably made sense. at the time i was very <laughs> pleased with the deal and then i yeah but anyway I, I won't even go into all the all of that happened <laughs> after that and all the dumb stuff i bought but i was in high school I, I was starting to work a little bit so i had a little income and uh, a lot of bad decisions made right. yes all right Nobody, nobody makes bad decisions. No, this. never, never. So, um, speaking of bad decisions, that's a good segue to talk about the Fleer bankruptcy. Um, so that, in my mind, is is really why we saw our dip here because um, Fleer, you know, they went bankrupt and um, mm-hmm. they were trying to put some sets out, and uh, but then the two thousand four two thousand five season, they they finally went under um, upper deck ended up buying the intellectual property, but they didn't bring that mm-hmm. back until future years. I want to say they skipped a couple years, maybe even 2007 was when they brought the FLIR stuff back. I could be wrong there, though. If I if I remember correctly, there was an EX set from kind of the upper deck in 2006, Okay, I think. 
I'd have to go back and look, but yeah. they, they kind of let it cool off a little bit and they didn't want to promote the name too much, even though they owned it, if that makes sense, just because it was a competitor. So, um, anyway, we saw a big spike in 2007. Okay. So, yep. um, you know, that's another year where we had pretty good rookie class. What did you, what are your memories of 2007? Yeah, I mean, the rookie class in 2007, headlined by Greg Oden, you know, he was the next big thing. <laughs> right. um, and then, you know, Durant was right behind him. I remember actually arguing with people that the the Blazers should have picked Kevin Durant, mainly because I thought that he fit their team better. He'd make them better overall. But uh, I was I guess, an Oden guy, so that's yeah. strike two for me on today's episode. <laughs> But there were also some big name guys from Florida, Al Horford, uh, Joaquin Noah. Mm-hmm. Those were really, really hot guys because they came off of that, you know, great, great teams in the March Madness runs. Right. So uh, yeah, a lot of guys in that in that year, and uh, you know, really those two guys were were driving a lot of the production. Yeah, and and then then when you look back, you know, which he wasn't driving it then, but guys like Mike Conley, I think was was two thousand seven. Yep. Is that right? Um, yep. So. Yeah, that, there was you know there was some excitement around that year, and then also we had um, it, it wasn't entirely new this year, but we had um, the companies were doing athlete exclusives, where right. like um, well, Tops Tops chose a lot of the same players I did, um, <laughs> which you know that speaks for itself. Um, Tops was a Greg Oden company. Um, Durant was with Upper Deck. So Upper Deck has yeah. a much better history. Adam and I talked about that on another episode. Um, Upper Deck seemed to really get it right more often than not, uh, at least choosing players, not with their business decisions either. Um, okay, so anyway, then we see a huge dip. Um, I mean, just a free fall from 2007 to 2010. And mm-hmm. um, once again, that's where some other factors come into play. Can you kind of explain what was happening around then? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I think about at that time outside of cards or basketball was uh, that was when the the Great Recession, as a lot of us remember, was really hitting, you know, all the all the people in America. Um, I think we saw some of the stuff with the companies and, and corporate America hit a little bit sooner than that. But this is when a lot of people were, you know, having hard times, you know, and cards just weren't weren't something that they're going to be spending their money on. And I think it probably also hit some of the, the production companies as well, where they, you know, kind of had to tighten the belt a little bit. Um, so that's one of the things that I remember in that time. But I, if I remember correctly, I don't remember the exact year, but that's when we started transitioning over to Panini uh, from Upper Deck and Tops. Right. So some of the some of the companies weren't producing as many sets just because they couldn't. Right. So, yeah, Fleer, Fleer had all, was already out at this point, even though Upper Deck was creating Fleer products. Um, the licenses came up for, um, you know, renewal or bid, um, I should say. And I talked about this some, I think in episode one, um, Mm -hmm. upper deck, upper deck thought it would be a great idea to have an exclusive license. Um, but then they got outbid for it. So (laughs) great, great idea, upper deck, which, you know, granted the exclusives do dominate the hobby today, but anyway, the NBA went along with it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, tops, I think, I don't even know if tops put in an actual bid, um, Mm -hmm. upper deck couldn't pony up enough money. Panini comes in out of nowhere, um, buys the Donruss brand. Um, but 
they were in that transition area so era so we didn't get all the cards um which is crazy you know that our our dip correlates with one of the best rookie classes that we've seen in a long time um with curry harden and which you know i know curry wasn't as big of a deal then but blake griffin was huge i mean that was all even even him being injured that was all everyone could talk about the, the interesting thing, I was really surprised when I was looking at the, when I was doing this research, Steph Curry was actually the most popular card produced. He had the most cards produced in that rookie class. I was fully expecting it to be Blake Griffin. And uh, I don't, I remember Steph Curry being very, very popular coming out of Davidson, but, you know, he wasn't a high draft pick. He was, you know, a lottery pick, but. Right. Um, yeah, I would have thought a guy like Tyreek Evans would have had a lot yep. more cards. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that that's something I didn't expect, and that's something we did we don't see on the graph. So that's that's good to know. Um, yep. All right. So then Panini's kind of, you know, stumbling there at the start. They're struggling, right? Um, doesn't mean what they were doing was bad, but they were kind of new to the whole basketball scene. They had just made stickers before that for the most part. Um, and then there's a lockout in 2011, so that doesn't help. Um, but then we see a big, a pretty big jump up in 2012. Um, tell us a little bit about 2012, if you don't mind. Yeah. So 2012, um, we had the double rookie class. So we had all the guys from 2011 and 2012. So Kyrie was one of the big guys, but you had, um, you had Anthony Davis was in that class as well. Uh, you know, so the list goes on, uh, Kawhi Leonard, just an incredible class for cards, because you had both rookie classes right. uh, together, and and a class that has stood the test of time. Um, yeah, and even some of the guys that have fallen off had had their time, like Harrison Barnes and Isaiah Thomas. Right. Um, so I mean, that's I've talked about that class on here before. Just it was the perfect storm. Um, but we, you know, great players, double class. Uh, I hated it at the time because I pulled double the amount of second round rookies um, <laughs> and everyone thought I was crazy. So I kind of shied off from buying this stuff. And now, you know, I look like a dummy. I feel like a dummy. Right. But anyway, um, so numbers dropped in 2013 because the rookie class was awful then. Even, you know, all people want to talk about now is Giannis, but that rookie class is yeah he was nobody and that rookie class was garbage and it still is yeah. um if you buy 2013 stuff and you don't get him um you know you're in trouble like the second best player Oladipo, Oladipo right but his stuff you know he's heard his stuff is low um yep. your number one pick that year you want to talk about him a little bit I'd rather not uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is one I was right about because I think the only people that were wrong about this one were the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah, I mean, Anthony Bennett, people kept talking about his wingspan, but I mean, I feel like going into that draft night, people were just like, this is going to be a mistake. Yeah. And I don't remember any other draft where you had a good idea of who the number one pick was going to be and people were saying, mm, I don't, even even in 06 with Bargnani, <laughs> people were like, you know what? He could be Dirk. Right. He could be the next Dirk. So, you know, I don't think this is going to be the best player in the draft, but he could be. And everybody, I don't I don't remember anybody saying, yeah, Anthony Bennett could be really good. Right. The Raptors had a rough run there with, with Garbajosa, just garbage, right? 
yeah. yeah, it was rough. But yeah, um, I remember this is when I was living in Charlotte and um, I saw one of the, the first games of that year that was against the Cavs and I'm watching this kid and, and not to pile on Anthony Bennett, but I didn't watch him in college. Where'd you go? UNLV, I think. UNLV, right. Yep. I didn't watch yep. him in college. I don't watch a lot of college ball. Um, pretty much just Big Ten. And um, I'm watching this guy on the floor. It's like he can't set screens. He doesn't. He's not in the right spots. He can't rebound. He can't shoot. And this guy's the number one yeah. pick. And it's not even like uh, he'll grow into his body. He'll grow into his athleticism type of thing. Like what you see is what you get. Um, yep. So, yeah. So we had a dip in 2013. Thanks, Anthony Bennett. <laughs> Thanks, Otto Porter. <laughs> Thanks, whoever else um, I've chosen to have forgotten. So, um, all right. So then things actually took a pretty big jump in 2014. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about 2014. Yeah, so uh, 2014, we had some big guys. Uh, really, the headliner there was Wiggins. Uh, and he was another guy that people had a lot of high expectations for. Um, a great defensive player, great athleticism. He just needs to grow into his potential offensively right. uh so people were thinking he could be the really next big 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 guy um you know as the post lebron years in cleveland so there was a lot of speculation as to what's going to go on there um well yeah so, even yeah. um you know at first it was oh wow is is this budding superstar going to team up with lebron right, right. that that kind of anticipation was really exciting um albeit short-lived, because then they traded him for Kevin Love. Um, right. You know, people, I've heard other people talk about how Embiid was a really big deal, but not really. Um, I mean, I, I know he was a high draft pick, but there was a lot of question marks about him then and his health then. So his his yep. values just weren't there. I mean, his, his values pretty much tanked um, not long after the draft. So, mm-hmm. okay, so things held um, pretty even. This is probably the most even part on on your graphs from 2014 yep. to 2016. And once again, we'll post these because it is kind of nice to look at these as we're talking about it. We have that advantage, so um, I'll try and post these. Um, so things stayed steady, and that's even with Ben Simmons. You know, that's right. you know a lot of big Carl Anthony Towns. A lot of big things happening there. Um, probably with Ben Simmons, the fact that he was hurt, and then the fact that he was an upper deck exclusive kept production numbers and hype down right yeah because i was expecting his numbers and he his numbers really did drag this whole statistic down um because the the top guy for production was uh brandon ingram because that exact point you know you couldn't get any jersey cards in the the beautiful hoops product or you know some of the other stuff for for ben simmons so they just they just weren't as many there um you know but there are plenty of brandon ingrams they're still floating out there yeah yeah, we were stuck with um, cards with fake diamonds in them instead. Um, yeah. Not to hate on what the flawless people. I know the diamond people are like really into their diamonds. So um, anyway, um, so then a uh, huge jump in huge jump after that. So can you help us break down the rest of this. You know what happened. You know this is where things got really interesting. Yeah, I mean it's really just. Uh unprecedented jump in my opinion um you know so the 2017 draft class marco Fultz was the number one guy lonzo ball i mean everybody was talking about the ball right uh and lonzo ball was the first ball to get into the nba and um 
his name was everywhere. But you also had Jason Tatum. You know, as the year went on, the rookie class looked great. But I think that this is also one of those years that you can look at in collecting in general, where we saw a lot of people coming back into the hobby, a lot of new entrants into the hobby. Um, so there's a lot of excitement. You know, I remember that Prism release, and you know, it was all that anybody talked about in the hobby for like three, maybe even. Four six months right it was just yeah it dragged every on. time i'd go into facebook yeah it would just be like, okay hey i've got this i opened this i found this uh should i buy these at, at target um you know so it was just it was a huge year both from the the draft class you know and then not even to mention donovan mitchell who was a later pick um who's been incredible yeah so I don't know, uh, you know, there's probably not one thing we can point to, but combined with the fact that it was a big draft class, I'm going to say um, the fact, it goes back to Simmons, the fact that he had that memorabilia exclusive and the autograph exclusive, um, that exploded the silvers, right? And then that's how kind of the LeBron silver craze took off. Um, So then that in turn really blew Prism up even more. Um, which yep. then led to the parallels and then like, hey, let's make some more shiny stuff. So I think that was a big factor as well, or could have been a big factor, which, you know, we don't know. This is all just, you know, these are all theories, but yeah, just speculation. Yeah, yeah and I mean, I, I my my feeling was the, the number of parallels just went up exponentially, um, you know, at this point in time. I remember, I remember pulling you know, a Pulsar green from Target, but then there was like a Pulsar red, I think, in Walmart. You know, so you had exclusive parallels in different locations. It was, you know, every color you could ever think of, every pattern you could think right. of. Tiger stripes. Right. When you have animal patterns and uh, lime green cards with swirls on them, right. at some point, enough is enough, right? Yeah. It's got to stop. So, But hey, people are buying them up, you know, who you know? Who am I to say don't buy your swirly cards? Um, one of our friends, Chris from House of Jordans, he said, "What did he tell us? He's a sensory overload. He loves this stuff. So, it, it yep. you know, it, yep. and that's great. You know, like some stuff uh, appeals to him that doesn't appeal to me, and vice versa. And, and that's that's why we collect what we like. Um, I'm gonna mm-hmm. downplay it though and say that swirly stuff is dumb. Um, <laughs> and I, but you know, if you like it, go get it." Right. All right. So all of this, um, everything's trending up and 2019 looks like it's going to be no exception here. Uh, What have you seen so far? Yeah. So, you know, we've only got a few products thus far, but it's looking like it's going to be a historic year in terms of production um, of unique cards. So I've seen through the few products that we've had thus far, I think we've got what, three or four products out there right right now. Um, We've got about 300 cards on average of the top three guys. So the top three guys being uh, Zion, obviously, is the number one guy. Ja Morant and then RJ Barrett are the top three guys that I found in my research. Um, let um, me clarify real quick that this um, this is before Prism because yes, um, yes. we don't have a checklist yet. And even though I went Correct. to, I'm ashamed to say this, five Walmarts yesterday, um, we have not found it yet. And a Target. We have not found it yet. So, so this yeah, this is even pre myself. Prism, which Prism will blow this thing up even more. Yep, for sure. And so I was looking at it. You know, obviously we've got the two collegiate products, which you know 
whether or not you want to include those. I mean, they are technically included, but I was then looking at, you know, the one that we've seen a lot of stuff out. It's been out for probably the longest out of any of the NBA products is hoops, obviously. So I looked at how many Zion cards specifically were in the hoops offering. Uh, and I found that there's over 50 cards, unique cards, right? That's, that's what I'm looking right. at. 50 unique cards of Zion just in the hoops product alone. Um, which was surprising to me. Yeah, that's <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> that's insane. You know, yeah. And when I was looking at some of the stuff when I had opened, not only do we have all the base cards, you've got the subset cards with the you know the the retro tribute. You've got different colors. You get the team colors, but you also have hollow versions of all the base. The now arriving, I think, is one of the insert sets. You get the hollow version of that. So it's like you've got parallels to all the inserts. You get parallels to every base you get parallels to the parallels of the base it's you know there no end in sight and then that's you know one of ones are in there as well uh, all kinds of stuff hmm. okay so you know we've reached the end of our graphs here so you know what do you make of all this because we can go back and look these 90s rookies you know you can find them in your quarter boxes now right so yep. you know is, is this sustainable how would you summarize this you know, what's your, what are your big takeaways from all of this? Yeah. So I, I try not to be too much of a, you know, I don't want to sensationalize right. my thoughts. Um, it, it does feel alarming to me. So if I look at, you know, there being 50 cards of Zion specifically in hoops, we're going to have 30 to 40 products this year. I mean, we could see 2000 plus Zion cards specifically out there available. Um, now granted, Opposed to the 90s, we've got a lot more serial-numbered cards. So that's really where I see, you know, collectors can can get some value if that's what they're looking is, you know, obviously collecting what you like first and foremost. That's what I always go for. If you're going to be happy with it, if it's zero dollars, then... If you like swirls, buy swirls. Exactly. Uh, you know, but I know there's a lot of people getting in that are looking to invest or, you know, they want, they want a card that's going to return for them, whether they're going to trade it or what they're going to do with it. Uh, and I just don't see that long term in the base cards because there's going to be so many different versions of all these base cards. But, um, you know, I think that the serial numbered stuff is is what is driving a lot of the collecting now. Uh, I think that's why we're seeing these numbers of unique cards go up so much. I know a lot of people like to speculate about print runs of the silver prisms and stuff. You know, it's really hard to quantify exactly how many there there are going to be made this year or how many were made in prior years. Um, but assuming that all the print runs are, are held the same, there's just more options. There's more things, quote unquote, right. <laughs> out there. Um, you know, so you really have to pick and choose, you know, gone are the days of, of being a player collector and a completionist like I was with Penny Hardaway, where I can get every single rookie card of his, uh, it's next to impossible to do that for, for any of the rookies now. Right. So you really kind of have to pick and choose your shots. So now, we do have a lot of people coming into the hobby, though, and a lot of people coming back. Mm-hmm. So as long as that number keeps growing, if the production keeps going up, it should be okay. But at some point, potentially, potentially right, it could be okay. At some point, yeah. there's going to, you know, people are going to drop out. You know, what happens if right. somebody like Zion gets hurt? Or, you mm-hmm. know, well, we would say that with Luca, you know, mm-hmm. if if they're driving this yeah. whole thing and they get hurt, that could be a big hit. 
Well, and one of the things that when I was looking at this data, looking at the number jump from 2016 uh, to 2017, it's almost double, which to me would mean you basically have to have twice as many participants in the market to sustain that kind of growth right. over the long term. Hmm. And, you know, I know we've seen a lot of people re-enter the market or jump in for the first time. I think it's pretty hard to say that we've seen double um, double the growth in that in that period of time. I mean, even just look at the, the numbers of people on the Facebook groups, they haven't doubled. Um, and granted, Facebook is not where, you know, 10-year-olds are going to be living for cards. But um, I just, I think that that, the number of people in the market currently is not going to be the same as what we're seeing the increase in. Um, and couple that with if there's an injury to one of these big guys, if one of the guys in the last two years plus this year, three years, um, isn't a superstar, it's going to be tough to find value. I mean, you know, if if you don't have any good players, you know, look at 2001. Nobody <laughs> wants those. Right. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of potential. So you could get the next generational superstar in a guy, you know, it could be, um, it could be a guy like Spida, Donovan Mitchell. It right. could be Zion. Seems really undervalued right now, by the way. Um, yeah. All right. So that a lot of stuff to chew on here. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of information to take in. I'm going to try and steer people to those graphs or, you know, like I said, repost them if I need to. Jake, once again, I appreciate you coming on and sharing this with all of us. Um, I'm, I'll probably have you on again because we could talk cards forever. I want to focus in right. just on certain years. I want to go back and just chat about them. But um, before I let you go, tell us a little bit about your your uh, YouTube channel for people who aren't familiar. And sure. then tell us maybe what we can expect to see from you soon. Yep. Um, yeah, thanks. So uh, my YouTube channel is 90s B-Ball Cards. Um, you can pretty much find me on all the social media under 90s b-ball cards so what i do primarily on there is i look at old 90s products i open packs and boxes uh, i show you some of the cards in my collection and really talk about what was going on at that time and what some of the cards are like now uh and and kind of the idea is if you're looking to go and buy one of these products this will help you know what you could be getting and how hard it is to pull that slam bams right <laughs> um but also so if you're looking to go and buy the singles, you know where, you know what to search for, uh, you know, kind of helping people learn that. But also, I know there's a lot of people who like to open packs, but they don't want to go and open the 90s. So you can live vicariously through me um, and uh, enjoy seeing me open up some of those packs. Um, so I, I also do some other things other than just pack openings. I do uh, do some stuff where I just show some pieces of my collection that people would like to see. Uh, but most of it is 90s based. Occasionally, you'll see me throw in a, a pack from you know 2000, 2001, or or some of the more modern products. And I am going to try. I uh, my plans were foiled, <laughs> but I'm going to try to do some of the new retail um, offerings on the channel as well. So I know one of the things when I got back in, I wanted to know, okay, if I'm buying the hanger versus the blaster versus the mega box, what's the difference between them? Uh, so I'd like to open some of those on the channel and show you all what you can get if you're going to Target. Uh, unfortunately, I was hoping to get some of the Prism, and it was all sold out, so I couldn't do that, but hopefully they'll come back soon. All right. Well, hang in there. I'm looking for it as well. I'm sure a lot of listeners are. Um, thanks once again, and, and I'll be looking forward to that content, and I'll be chatting with you soon. All right. So once again, thanks to Jake Roy for coming on to talk about rookie card production numbers. I'll try to post some of the graphics that he made on my social media so you can come um, and have a look at them as well. 
Um, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Maybe some of this resonated with you in some way. You know, maybe you had a, a favorite year in the hobby that doesn't line up with one of the major rookie classes, or maybe you have some thoughts on rookie card production and how it's changed over the years. Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.